So, we're starting a new sermon series for Lent, and we're going to be looking a little bit at um, the book of First John. So, so if you, um, as I was, I was starting into First John, I realized that First John is not super sequential in the way that it's ordered. Uh, and so I think that one of the best ways to just follow along with the sermon series of First John, uh, it's pretty short. I would say one of the best ways that you could immerse yourself in that is every once in a while just pick up a Bible and just read First John. You could read like all of it in like 10 minutes or you could read some of it in five minutes, right? Uh, but reading it and, and the themes will kind of echo and we're going to be touching on some of those themes that... John brings up and then repeats and then it comes back. So that's, um, that's one of the ways. I, I was telling Stephanie, like, I think we should just read the whole book of 1 John, like, in the service, right? Or just make everybody read it, like, five times in a row. Um, but we didn't get consensus on that. <laughs> so I have to preach uh, instead. Well, I wasn't just trying to get out of preaching. Um, but one of the things that First John made me think about, uh, and, and it may not ever make sense, but it might make sense in a little bit, is this, this internet fad. Has anyone heard of the fad of, um, it's not fad, it's like a trend. When you call it a trend now, fad is kind of old school. It's a trend, uh, trending videos that have to do with things that are oddly satisfying. So the title, oddly satisfying video of like someone cutting a giant piece of meat or like sometimes it's like slimy things and the way that they come together. Uh, there's this, this strategy. Uh, I, I looked it up and then I read this article about this woman who was in a stressful time in her life and she just had a baby and there was a bunch of other stressful things going on and she got hooked on these oddly satisfying videos and she'd just find some video of somebody completing some task or something and she'd be strangely soothed by the oddly satisfying video. Anyone want to admit that they enjoy watching oddly satisfying videos? <laughs> Over there. Yeah, okay. Oh yeah, we got some. So it's a thing. Right? You guys might not, not realize, but it's a thing. So I'm going to share one with you. I'm not trying to hook you on oddly satisfying videos, but it might be a byproduct. So if you can go ahead and just go to that one, because I'm afraid I'll mess it up if I click forward. Here's an oddly satisfying video. Yeah. Do you get do you do you get it now? Right? Some people are like, no, I don't get it. Some people are like, yeah, that's oddly satisfying. Somebody doing the perfect completion of a circle, right? How would you feel if I stopped it like a third of the way in? No, like don't mess with it. It has to be complete. And we take some satisfaction, we might find it a little bit odd, but we some take some satisfaction in seeing something completed in seeing something done and done well, and I take some satisfaction, maybe not as much as people who are really into these videos, but I take some satisfaction in seeing the whole thing filled up, there's nothing outside of the line, and it gets totally complete. I think one of the guiding uh, principles of the Gospel of John, or the Gospel, well, both the Gospel of John and 1 John, the letter of John that we're gonna be looking at, uh, is that John is t 
telling us, uh, wanting us to have, wanting himself to have what he calls complete joy. And in the themes of John, there's this idea that there's going to be, a joy is going to be made complete by light overcoming darkness. So John is kind of this out there apostle, this kind of out there guy who spent a lot of time by himself after being with Jesus and thought about things deeply. Um, but he has these, this, this, um, this image of his mind that something is happening, that joy is happening through light coming into darkness, and that one of the reasons that he's writing is to make his joy complete, to make our joy complete, to keep seeing light overcoming darkness. He writes it like this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked at with our hands, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this. Are we, yeah, we write this to make our joy complete. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And then he goes on, Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one that you've had since the beginning. The old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him. And in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. So there's this image of the light and the life coming into the world and that the darkness is passing away. Do you get that? So, so you can probably already see that John's kind of going through tons of themes and just interweaving all of them. And I'm, I'm not really going to, the goal isn't necessarily to try to distill all of that out and come up with something different than what John has, but to ponder together the way that John sees the world and the way that he's leading us to see the world, the way that the Bible is leading us to see the world and the way that it challenges some of the other ways that we can deal with life and with our spirituality and with our practice of being people in the world that we live in. So we get that we get that that we want to see things completed. We get that that circle being shaded up. We want to see completeness. Uh, we get oddly satisfied by seeing the simple things completed. Um, but we get so much more joy when we see actual meaningful things completed. We finish high school or college, right? Maybe sometimes with some suspense in there that we didn't know we were going to make it. Uh, we, have, we make it to a wedding, maybe, after dating a great partner for a while. Maybe after dating a few not-so-great ones in the past, right? We didn't think, we weren't sure this was going to happen, but it happened. Uh, we maybe buy a first home, or we buy a first car. Uh, 
we're made to see things completed. Uh, and I think what John is saying is that there is this completion that's happening in the cosmos, in the entire order of the way things are that we're being invited into. Uh, John has a certain, so, so we talk about, um, oh, there it is again. Uh, some people talk about the, the academic word is like the cosmology of, the, of John. John's cosmology is the way that he sees the whole world. And one way to look at John's cosmology and, and what he's leading us to in scripture is that God is light. That's what verse 4 says. God is light, and in him there is no darkness. So you have light in one hand, which equals God, and then you have darkness on the other hand. And then we see that light is overcoming the darkness, right? So what we're seeing is like that circle getting filled up that something's happening, that God is overcoming darkness with light. Right? That's good. And so we should be, what, what, as we get deeper into it, to the Gospel of John and as we look at our lives, what we should be seeing is light overcoming darkness. And we should be having that, that level of anticipation, uh, at least as much as the filling up of that little circle, Right? We should be having that level of anticipation that's building. Oh, it's happening. It's happening. I see it. I see the light coming. I see the light overcoming the darkness in myself and in my world. Uh, The complication uh, to what the darkness looks like and what darkness, how darkness operates in our world, John gets into next. He says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them uh, to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They don't know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. So... So we see light overcoming darkness. And John, sometimes... One thing that I read in the Gospel of John is sometimes like... Uh, John is using a lot of hyperbole and a lot of like all or nothing language. It's kind of ancient rhetoric. So I don't think the goal for John is for us to say, um, oh my goodness, if I've ever disliked somebody or hated somebody, that means maybe I'm not actually with God. Uh, maybe I'm not um, God's child. I think God want, uh, John wants us to examine that. Scripture wants us to examine that. But more what you'll see is, John, is that the Gospel of John, the letter of John, is rooting for us and saying, no, it is true of you that you do love, that the light of God is in you, and it is overtaking the darkness that's in you. So I want to make that note. But, but the overall cosmology, then, is that God is light, And that darkness, one of the key ways that John sees darkness operating is hatred of each other. So God is light, and this hatred of each other uh, is where we see the biggest expression of darkness. And so then when you come back uh, and you realize that, that this light is shining in the darkness, you come back to 1 John 1, and it's key... That, that John is saying, we've seen and we've heard with our eyes, 
we've looked at and we've touched the word of life. That God in light sees darkness and is overcoming it by coming in flesh. Does that make sense? So in flesh, Jesus is coming uh, to, to remove, to overcome, to overtake this darkness. And the way that he's doing that is in sacrificial love. 1 John uh, 2, 1 through 2 says, If anybody doesn't sin or does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but of the whole world. So we have this problem that hatred reigns in us, that darkness is in our world and in us, uh, that we can't get along with each other, that we put ourselves over other people, uh, and we see the damaging effects of that in our whole world. But the solution to that, the mechanism that God uses, is that Jesus comes in flesh and in self-sacrificial love. So I'm kind of giving an overview of John's cosmology here. But Jesus, uh, God in flesh, comes in self-sacrificial love, and there's a way that as he does that and builds a community of people that are in fellowship with, with God, that it short-circuits the power of darkness and the hatred of each other. Does that make sense? The mechanism of overcoming the hatred is Jesus' self-sacrificial love and incarnation. And in John's community, uh, oh yeah, and then you get the whole thing becomes light, right? So that's what happens at the end, is that, that we get this picture, light is overcoming the darkness, that Jesus' sacrifice is going to have its way and set all things right. That's the, that's the cosmology. And the thing that, that John is running into in his, uh, in his ministry in this church, he was ministering to churches probably around the town of Ephesus, uh, is a, a totally different worldview that was really pre prevalent. And it's the Gnostic world. Does anyone know anything about Gnosticism? It might sound more familiar to you as we go on, but Gnosticism uh, comes from the word, it's, it's kind of this cluster of uh, ancient kind of worldview, religion type stuff. And it comes from the word gnosis, which means knowledge. So it was this, uh, there were all these kind of like knowledge cults. Uh, and they had not a, not a bunch in common all the time, um, but one of the things that they had in common was this basic worldview that there's a spiritual realm um, and that certain accurate ideas or information uh, was, was, the key, was what it was. So the spiritual realm was not material. And so the material world and paying attention to the material world was where there was darkness. So the idea was that you gain some kind of a secret knowledge and then you're transported kind of out of physical reality, or you don't have to worry about physical reality, and you're in kind of the realm of the spiritual. And that is a, 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 no, a notion that actually is still around today. I was um, up in Yelm a couple years ago, uh, where Cascades Camp is, and I went on a bike ride, and I ended up riding through, I think I might have gone past a do not enter sign. Um, I ended up riding through this, like, little village of, like, 
makeshift houses like shacks and stuff. And I rode through there and a dog barked at me and so then I rode faster through there and I had to kind of ride like into the woods on a like logging road. I was like, I'm getting out of here. And then I asked uh, Rob Morweiss, the director of the camp, he says, oh yeah, there's this, um, this group out here, this cult group that, um, and it's called, I wrote it down, it's called the uh, Ramtha's School of Enlightenment. And, and these people, those shacks that you saw, those people actually probably have pretty good jobs and make a fair amount of money. They just give all of their money to this Ramtha, this woman who runs this school. And when you give enough money, you get an unlock another level of knowledge where you transcend kind of the, the material world and you have knowledge. So this is still operating. There's a few of these uh, kind of groups like that um, around the, the Pacific Northwest, all over the world, really. Um, but there's this lure of the idea that what's really wrong is our physical world and that knowledge is gonna transcend that. Uh, so we see it a little bit now, uh, they, and, and John saw it a lot. And then what would happen is that um, being right is kind of being in the light. And darkness was being wrong. And so salvation in the Gnostic cosmology, and this is kind of just what's in the air in the, the places that John's working, is that, um, that you escape the material bad world by acquiring spiritual knowledge. And actually, a lot of these, Gnosticism would have this tendency, and sorry to get nerdy on you, but I think it helps, it helps in understanding the Bible in general um, and the New Testament in general, because this is kind of what, what the New Testament is talking to, speaking to a lot, is this kind of worldview. But it also will come back to us, because I think sometimes we think, whoa, we're way above that. Uh, we're way past that, but we're actually not in the way that our minds and our spirits operate. So... So the idea is you're going to acquire spiritual knowledge, and then the result was a hate or a disdain for people who don't get it. That might be something that strikes closer to home, right? Like, I'm going to figure out the right thing, uh, and the righter I get, the more knowledge I get, the more I feel elevated, and the more I look down on other folks. Right? So that might be something that we resonate with a little bit more. In Gnosticism, another thing that happened was there was this, um, this dislike for thinking about physical things. So if the real thing is spiritual, then the material doesn't matter. So they had two extremes of that, was that on the one hand, they would say, um, be like super uh, aesthetic. So I'm going to like totally deny my body any pleasure. I'm going to fast all the time. I'm going to avoid physical contact or physical things. I'm not going to overeat, those kind of things. On the other hand, there were Gnostics who said, oh, don't pay attention to any of that. Eat as much as you want. Engage in whatever kind of sexual activity. It doesn't matter because that's just your body, so none of it matters, right? But it's this, like, this polarization of like physical is bad, so we either have to totally deny it or we have to totally just ignore it and do whatever. Uh, and I think we see, um, we can see sometimes that creep into to our Christianity as well. Okay, so Gnosticism, that's Gnosticism. Uh, and, and the gospel of, of scripture is that God is light though, and that Jesus is God in the flesh 
sacrificing for us and overcoming dark, darkness and hatred of each other. So, so the material world, uh, it's, it's incompatible uh, Gnosticism and that idea that the, there's, the material world is just evil and we have to avoid it or transcend it uh, isn't compatible with what Jesus is doing in the world. Uh, and John knows that. Uh, and then we get into Docetic cosmology, and that is like the Christian Gnostic, uh, the, the Christian view of Gnosticism. And that's where uh, God is still light, so it's, it's a Christian idea or a, or a kind of twist on Christianity where God's still light, um, but they denied Jesus came in flesh. So these are the kinds of things that were happening uh, that John was writing to. Uh, there was one teaching uh, in Antioch. Um, Saturnius held that the incorporeal Christ was the Redeemer. So a, a Christ with no body was the Redeemer. And he claimed that there was no incarnation. Uh, Sernathius claimed that Jesus was just a man, but then Christ descended on him in the form of a dove. So there's like a Jesus that's physical, but Christ is like spiritual, right? So it's separating out. Uh, and that Christ didn't suffer, that the Christ, this like spiritual thing, couldn't suffer. And so it withdrew from Jesus before Jesus was crucified. Uh, and these are the kind of heresies that are dividing the church. Uh, Hippolytus held, held that Christ didn't suffer, but that Simon of Cyrene was actually crucified in his place, while the invisible Christ stood by laughing. Right? So you get that idea of, like, there's this arrogance of the real spiritual people wouldn't really suffer. Uh, if you're really spiritual, then the, the, the trials of having a physical body, the kind of messiness of physical life isn't going to lead you, um, is, isn't going to happen. And so there was this Christianity that was emerging in that. And so there was this group within the church that John's talking to uh, where their view of the cosmology and of the world was that the knowledge that Je this, this secret knowledge that Jesus didn't have a physical body, didn't actually suffer, that that's what was going to save them. But the problem is, is they don't have that gospel of a Christ that's transforming love by coming into contact. They don't have a gospel based on sacrificial love. And so they're still getting that byproduct of the hate for those who don't or won't get it. So that's why John is consistently talking about, you can't hate your brother and sister. Like, if you're one of these docetic uh, people, like, if you're, if you're hating your brothers and sisters, then it's a sign that your spirituality isn't really working. Uh, and the, the way that the spirituality of, uh, of Christianity works is through love and through being willing to suffer with even at the hands of each other, to transform the darkness into light. Oh, wait. We don't want to go there yet. Okay. So if I've lost you there, I'm sorry. <laughs> Sometimes I get nerdy, and then we see how it pl plays out, uh, and I'll learn from it. Uh, so... So you may be thinking, 
Uh, Mark, this doesn't really apply to me. So I'm going to try to bring it home into our century. It, it's about 10 years ago. Um, but to see kind of how this element, uh, this aspect of wanting knowledge and knowledge dividing us and tearing each other against each other works out in our day and age. And this is a Portlandia clip. So it's supposed to be funny. It's a little over the top with satire. Um, so, but, but we'll see. We'll see that. Oh, Maggie's running late. Okay. Hey, did you guys read that thing in the New Yorker last month about how golf is an analogy for marriage? I did. Mm -hmm. I did read that. Did you hear the thing in McSweeney's? Mm. I was comparing CD tracks and album tracks. Did you read that? Yeah. Did you read that thing in Mother Jones about eco chairs and eco ways to sit? I did. Yeah. I did. Did you read that thing in Spain about all the festivals? Uh huh. Did you read that thing in Pace? It was about the National. Oh, I saw that. Did you read that thing in Dwell about all the mid-century houses? Yeah. Did you read the New York Times? Yes. New York Observer? Yes. Washington Post? Yes. Wall Street Journal? Of course I read it. Did you read that steampunk article in Boing Boing? I did not like the end of it. Did you read that skywriting over the Willamette River? Yes. Did you read the fortune cookie? Yes. From last night? Yes. Did you read it? Yes. There were two. Yes. Did you read that thing that guy wrote in the sand on the beach? Yeah. Did you read the Portland Mercury? Yeah. Did you read the Willamette Week? Yeah. Did you read the Seattle Stranger? Beginning to end. Did you read the SF Weekly? I loved it. The Harvard Lampoon? Well written. Did you read Mad Magazine? I did not like the end of it. Did you read Kathy? That was cute. Did you read Family Circus? Sure. Did you read Calvin and Hobbes? Sure. Did you read the Boston Globe? Sure. Did you read the Washington Blade? We read it together. Did you read? Uh huh. Did you read? Mm -hmm. Did you read? Of course I did. did you read? I read it to a friend of mine. Did you read the closing credits of that movie? Yeah, did you read that book? Did you read the Bible? Did you read it? Did you read it? Did you read it? Finger writing on the window? Did you read it? Because I did. Did you read it? Did you know? Hey, Maggie. Hey, Maggie. Did you guys read the new Portland Monthly? It's crazy. Sorry for the violence, but it seemed comic violence. Uh, so, so right, yeah, you might you might kind of get that, you might kind of not, but I think we've all. We live here. You know, you know, yeah, right. We experienced that, and I think we experienced that more and more. I was talking about kind of polarization in our culture. We experiencing that more and more that different people have different sets of information. Uh, we get really into it, and the pursuit of the right information, of being on the right track, of knowing the right thing, and being the community of people that knows the right thing and is right about the right things, uh, can become the, the salvation narrative of our time. That that's what's going to get it right. If we would all just know the right information, or if we would all just believe the same information, that's going to be accurate. It might be a political philosophy. It might be about what the best public health measure is for this or that thing. It might be about recycling or whatever it might be. Uh, we think if we get the right information, that we're going to be OK. We'll get where we need to go. And that the obstacle then quickly becomes the people who don't get it or who don't see things the same way that we see them. Uh, and if they would get it, then we would be saved. We'd be saved as a nation or as a world or in all these different ways. Uh, and, and quickly, we can become uh, consumed with resentment uh, and even hatred for the people who don't get it, right? 
that is that path uh, that is contrary to the path of the gospel for how light is going to overcome darkness. Light isn't going to overcome darkness by simple knowledge. Knowledge can actually reinforce the darkness if we allow our knowledge uh, to cause us to hate our neighbor, to hate our brother and sister. Does that make sense? And what John is calling us to do is not, he, I mean, he gives a lot of great knowledge about who Jesus is and all this stuff. He's, he's reinforcing accurate knowledge. There's no, there's no call to abandon a pursuit of truth or that that doesn't matter, it doesn't matter to get it right. But he's saying over and over again that, that if your knowledge, if, if something's causing you to hate your brother and sister, then that's the darkness expanding. That is no longer the light of the gospel expanding in you. And I think we have to check ourselves on that. I think this happens, uh, we can see it kind of in, in secular ways, but I think there's a temptation to do this in Christian ways too. I know we can be tempted, uh, and, and I've seen this in very time, various times in communities and churches, that just knowing the Bible is the same thing as being in the light. That the more we know and the deeper we know, the more we know about Gnosticism or something nerdy like Mark talks about, the more we know about these, all this, and then the background to that, and then how this scripture interacts with that. If we know it all perfectly, that, that we can put all of our energy into that uh, and believe that somehow, by knowing the right thing, that we're saved. That we're in the light because we know what the Bible says particularly. Uh, it doesn't mean we shouldn't know what the Bible says. We're, we're supposed to meditate. We're supposed to delight in the, in the law of the Lord. We're supposed to delight in, in what God's given us. But simply knowing can also create that same heart tug, even when it's scripture, even when it's something good, it can create that same dynamic where we start to hate each other. Uh, that the hatred starts to overtake uh, the gospel and the work of, that Christ is doing in self-sacrificial love. And it's not a simple solution, right? Because we're going to disagree about things that are important, and we should be trying to get it right. And hatred isn't the same thing as disagreement, and hatred isn't the same thing as making decisions uh, that we need to make. But we do have to guard our hearts against falling in to, to some kind of a system or buying into some kind of a belief that pits us against each other. And when we realize that we're going there, we realize that we're, we're moving outside of the gospel that's actually going to create the change and the difference that we want to experience. That's not what fills to overflowing with goodness. So the light overcomes the darkness. Um, but John goes on, and John wants to cheer us on. This next section uh, of text reminds me of uh, Stephanie's sermon last week. That that John, the gospel, or the I always say the gospel. This letter of John, First John, is teaching us. Uh, is, is calling out a community and saying, you can do it. 
John is saying, yes, you may notice that there's some darkness in your community. It's probably a time of deep division in the church there. There's some darkness here. There's some hatred for each other. But John says, God, the light is working in you and is calling on what's good and calling on what's good in each other. Uh, it kind of breaks into First uh, John 2, 12 through 14, kind of breaks from like prose into basically like a cheer. I don't know any better way to describe it, but it has that repetitive quality, uh, like what about our color shout? Um, you guys remember that one? No, I can't. No. <laughs> um, it has that repetitive cheer mentality. Uh, and it's written with, with, um, with more male figures, but, but John knows and we know that this applies to more than that. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on the account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. He keeps going. He gets repetitive. I write to you, dear children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. You've already overcome. The light is already manifesting itself in self-sacrificial love. And I'd say, West Hills Covenant, you know how to overcome the evil one. As we think about and as we're convicted about the ways that that sometimes the darkness of the world creeps into the way that we view each other, uh, the way that we view uh, ourselves as being superior over other people. As we're convicted of that, uh, we're reminded that you, West Hills, we've already overcome. That we know who was in the beginning. We know Jesus who came in flesh to sacrifice himself for us. We've sacrificed for each other in love when it's been uncomfortable. We've lived out the love of God in flesh. And we're seeing light overcome darkness. Sometimes when the darkness uh, looks the darkest are the times where we actually have the opportunity to see the light in each other more strongly and more powerfully. It calls upon our courage uh, to actually sacrifice, uh, to stop the bickering and respond uh, in ways that promote light and wholeness. I was rereading uh, some of the biography, autobiography of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And his nonviolent approach, I keep going back over and over again, to this nonviolent approach that Martin Luther King Jr. had that was rooted in love. Uh, He says over and over again in his autobiography that it was the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of love, uh, with some nonviolent principles that really start in the Sermon on the Mount, um, but that are extrapolated in some of uh, his practice and some of what he heard from Gandhi even, uh, that 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 was what gave his movement uh, real power and significance, and not just to accomplish a task or a policy end, but to transform, uh, to do some work, the work is certainly not done, but to do some work in transforming the character of a nation, the character of a people. 
he writes about a time, uh, a time in, uh, this was in Birmingham, Alabama, and it was 1963 when he writes this. With the jails filling up and the scorching glare of national disapproval focused on Birmingham, Bull Connor abandoned his posture of nonviolence. The result was ugliness too well known to Americans and people all over the world. The newspapers of May 4th carried pictures of prostrate women and policemen bending over them with raised clubs. Of children marching up to barred fangs of police dogs. Of the terrible force of pressure hoses sweeping bodies into the streets. He writes, this was the time of our greatest stress. And the courage and conviction of those students and adults made it our finest hour. It's a time of the greatest stress, the greatest amount of division. As Martin Luther King Jr. and all these people uh, move in love to confront injustice. The goal of this nonviolent revolution uh, was, was so that people, uh, if they were going to choose hateful, um, bigoted policies, that they would have to see that enforced face to face. So if you're going to choose to discriminate against us as we protest nonviolently, if you're going to choose to treat us as less than human, then that's going to become a public thing, where we're going to put ourselves in the position where that's going to have to become uh, clearly visible. But always with the goal that you do not have to choose that. And that there is room on, on the side of justice for everybody. Uh, and that, that the goal is that as you see the hatred and the violence, that something is going to change in your heart. And that you won't be able to put up with it anymore. That's what he's saying. The jails are filling up in Montgomery uh, as these protests are happening, and, and the nation is turning sour on actually seeing what the hate looks like, seeing it dramatized so clearly. And in their time of greatest stress, the courage and conviction of the students and adults made it their finest hour. It's my prayer that, that the time of our stress whether it's a 2020 election, whether it's uh, issues we navigate as a church, whether it's dealing with a public health crisis like coronavirus, whatever it is that might be our time of greatest stress is a time where God can lead us in courage and self-sacrificing love to make it our finest hour. He goes on, we did not fight back, but we did not turn back. We did not fight back, but we did not turn back. That's the hardest place to be. And that's that exact pattern of Christ. Not fighting back, but not being turned back from the purposes of love. We did not give way to bitterness. Some few spectators who'd been trained in the discipline of nonviolence, who had not been trained in nonviolence, reacted to the brutality of the, the policemen by throwing rocks and bottles. But the demonstrators remain nonviolent. In the face of this revolution, resolution and bravery, the moral conscience of the nation was deeply stirred. And all over the country, our fight became the fight of decent Americans of all races and creeds. The moral indignation which was spreading throughout the land, the sympathy created by the children, 
the growing involvement of the Negro community, all these factors were mingling to create a certain atmosphere inside our movement. It was a pride in the progress and a conviction that we were going to win. The conviction that we were going to win. I think that's what John is urging us to, to say, look, we're writing, we're continuing to, to put out the gospel, to urge you to love, to, to love each other sacrificially, to reject hate and division uh, of, of the body of Christ, because we want to see the joy be complete. And as we do that in stress, as we take those steps to love each other sacrificially, to reject hate and division, we, I think, will gain that growing, growing picture that it is getting completed. Just like in that movement in Montgomery, they gain this growing conviction, we are going to win. The self-sacrificing love is going to carry out its purposes. The challenge for us is that we want to see that the light of God can overtake the darkness wherever we find it in our lives, in our communities, even in our families, our friendships, that our times of greatest stress can be our times of greatest courage to love. It's my prayer and it's my... um, my conviction that West Hills, the spirit of Christ is here with us. That you are strong. Man, I know many of your stories uh, and the ways that Christ has overcome the evil one in your life and your story. Uh, The ways that you've responded to the spirit in love and sacrifice. And whatever it is that we face as a community, we can overcome the darkness with light as we continue to lean into that story, lean into the story of Lent, of God's self-sacrifice and love. Let's be excited that our joy is going to be complete. We may not see it right away, but our joy is going to be complete. Jesus has already won the victory. And we're seeing it worked out in the life of our community, uh, in our lives, and in the lives of each other. Let's pray.